Chapter Six, Part Two of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Six, Part Two. The snow lasted for some days. On the Sunday they went to church. They made a line of footprints across the garden. He left a flat snow print of his hand on the wall as he vaulted over. They traced the snow across the churchyard. For three days they had been immune in a perfect love. There were very few people in church, and she was glad. She did not care much for church. She had never questioned any beliefs, and she was, from habit and custom, a regular attendant at morning service. But she had ceased to come with any anticipation. Today, however, in the strangeness of snow, after such consummation of love, she felt expectant again and delighted. She was still in the eternal world. She used, after she went to the high school and wanted to be a lady, wanted to fulfill some mysterious ideal, always to listen to the sermon and to try to gather suggestions. That was all very well for a while. The vicar told her to be good in this way and in that. She went away feeling it was her highest aim to fulfill these injunctions. But quickly this palled. After a short time, she was not very much interested in being good. Her soul was in quest of something which was not just being good and doing one's best. No, she wanted something else, something that was not her ready made duty. Everything seemed to be merely a matter of social duty and never of herself. They talked about her soul. But somehow never managed to rouse or to implicate her soul. As yet, her soul was not brought in at all. So that whilst she had an affection for Mr. Loverseed, the vicar, and a protective sort of feeling for Cassate Church, wanting always to help it and defend it, it counted very small in her life. Not but that she was conscious of some unsatisfaction. When her husband was roused by the thought of the churches, Then she became hostile to the ostensible church. She hated it for not fulfilling anything in her. The church told her to be good, very well. She had no idea of contradicting what it said. The church talked about her soul, about the welfare of mankind, as if the saving of her soul lay in her performing certain acts conducive to the welfare of mankind. Well and good, it was so then. Nevertheless, as she sat in church, her face had a pathos and a poignancy. Was this what she had come to hear? How by doing this thing and by not doing that she could save her soul? She did not contradict it, but the pathos of her face gave the lie. There was something else she wanted to hear. It was something else she asked for from the church. But who was she to affirm it? And what was she doing with unsatisfied desires? She was ashamed. She ignored them and left them out of count as much as possible. Her underneath yearnings. They angered her. She wanted to be like other people, decently satisfied. He angered her more than ever. Church had an irresistible attraction for him, and he paid no more attention to that part of the service which was church to her than if he had been an angel or a fabulous beast sitting there. He simply paid no heed to the sermon or to the meaning of the service. There was something thick, dark, dense, powerful about him that irritated her too deeply for her to speak of it. The church teaching in itself meant nothing to him. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us, it simply did not touch him. 
It might have been mere sounds, and it would have acted upon him in the same way. He did not want things to be intelligible, and he did not care about his trespasses, neither about the trespasses of his neighbor when he was in church. Leave that care for weekdays. When he was in church, he took no more notice of his daily life. It was weekday stuff. As for the welfare of mankind, he merely did not realize that there was any such thing, except on weekdays, when he was good-natured enough. In church, he wanted a dark, nameless emotion, the emotion of all the great mysteries of passion. He was not interested in the thought of himself or of her. Oh, and how that irritated her! He ignored the sermon, he ignored the greatness of mankind, he did not admit the immediate importance of mankind, he did not care about himself as a human being, he did not attach any vital importance to his life in the drafting office, or his life among men. That was just merely the margin to the text. The verity was his connection with Anna, and his connection with the church. His real being lay in his dark emotional experience of the infinite, of the absolute, and the great mysterious illuminated capitals to the text were his feelings with the church. It exasperated her beyond measure. She could not get out of the church the satisfaction he got. The thought of her soul was intimately mixed up with the thought of her own self. Indeed, her soul and her own self were one and the same in her, whereas he seemed simply to ignore the fact of his own self, almost to refute it. He had a soul, a dark, inhuman thing, caring nothing for humanity, so she conceived it, and in the gloom and the mystery of the church his soul lived and ran free, like some strange underground thing, abstract. He was very strange to her, and in this church spirit, in conceiving himself as a soul, he seemed to escape and run free of her. In a way she envied at him, this dark freedom and jubilation of the soul, some strange entity in him. It fascinated her. Again she hated it, and again she despised him, wanted to destroy it in him. This snowy morning he sat with a dark bright face beside her, not aware of her, and somehow she felt he was conveying to strange secret places the love that sprang in him for her. He sat with a dark rapt, half-delighted face, looking at a little stained window. She saw the ruby-colored glass, with the shadow heaped along the bottom from the snow outside, and the familiar yellow figure of the lamb holding the banner, a little darkened now, but in the murky interior strangely luminous, pregnant. She had always liked the little red and yellow window. The lamb, looking very silly and self-conscious, was holding up a forepaw, in the cleft of which was dangerously perched a little flag with a red cross. Very pale yellow, the lamb, with greenish shadows. Since she was a child she had liked this creature, with the same feeling she felt for the little woolly lambs on green legs that children carried home from the fair every year. She had always liked these toys, and she had the same amused childish liking for this church lamb, yet she had always been uneasy about it. She was never sure that this lamb with a flag did not want to be more than it appeared, so she half mistrusted it. There was a mixture of dislike in her attitude to it. Now, by a curious gathering, knitting of his eyes, the faintest tension of ecstasy on his face, he gave her the uncomfortable feeling that he was in correspondence with the creature, the lamb in the window. A cold wonder came over her. Her soul was perplexed. There he sat, motionless, timeless, with the faint, bright tension on his face. 
What was he doing? What connection was there between him and the lamb in the glass? Suddenly it gleamed to her dominant, this lamb with the flag. Suddenly she had a powerful mystic experience. The power of the tradition seized on her. She was transported to another world, and she hated it, resisted it. Instantly it was only a silly lamb in the glass again, and dark, violent hatred of her husband swept up in her. What was he doing, sitting there gleaming, carried away, soulful? She shifted sharply. She knocked him as she pretended to pick up her glove. She groped among his feet. He came too, rather bewildered, exposed. Anybody but her would have pitied him. She wanted to rend him. He did not know what was amiss, what he had been doing. As they sat at dinner in their cottage, he was dazed by the chill of antagonism from her. She did not know why she was so angry, but she was incensed. "'Why do you never listen to the sermon?' she asked, seething with hostility and violation. "'I do,' he said. "'You don't. You don't hear a single word.' He retired into himself to enjoy his own sensation. There was something subterranean about him, as if he had an underworld refuge. The young girl hated to be in the house with him when he was like this. After dinner he retired into the parlour, continuing in the same state of abstraction, which was a burden intolerable to her. Then he went to the bookshelf, and took down books to look at that she had scarcely glanced over. He sat absorbed over a book on the illuminations in old missals, and then over a book on paintings in churches—Italian, English, French, and German. He had, when he was sixteen, discovered a Roman Catholic bookshop where he could find such things. He turned the leaves in absorption, absorbed in looking, not thinking. He was like a man whose eyes were in his chest, she said of him later. She came to look at the things with him. Half they fascinated her. She was puzzled, interested, and antagonistic. It was when she came to pictures of the Pieta that she burst out. I do think they're loathsome, she cried. What? he said, surprised, abstracted. Those bodies with slits in them, posing to be worshipped. You see, it means the sacraments, the bread, he said slowly. Does it? she cried. Then it's worse. I don't want to see your chest slit, nor to eat your dead body, even if you offer it to me. Can't you see it's horrible? It isn't me, it's Christ. What if it is? It's you, and it's horrible, you wallowing in your own dead body and thinking of eating it in the sacrament. You've got to take it for what it means. It means your human body put up to be slit and killed and then worshipped. What else? They lapsed into silence. His soul grew angry and aloof. And I think that lamb in church, she said, is the biggest joke in the parish. She burst into a poof of ridiculing laughter. It might be to those that see nothing in it, he said. You know it's the symbol of Christ, of his innocence and sacrifice. Whatever it means, it's a lamb, she said, and I like lambs too much to treat them as if they had to mean something. As for the Christmas tree flag, no, and again she poofed with mockery. It's because you don't know anything, he said violently, harshly. Laugh at what you know, not at what you don't know. What don't I know? What things mean, and what does it mean? He was reluctant to answer her. He found it difficult. What does it mean? she insisted. It means the triumph of the resurrection. She hesitated, baffled. A fear came upon her. What were these things? Something dark and powerful seemed to extend before her. Was it wonderful after all? 
but no, she refused it. Whatever it may pretend to mean, what it is is a silly, absurd toy lamb with a Christmas tree flag ledged on its paw, and if it wants to mean anything else it must look different from that. He was in a state of violent irritation against her. Partly he was ashamed of his love for these things. He hid his passion for them. He was ashamed of the ecstasy into which he could throw himself with these symbols, and for a few moments he hated the lamb and the mystic pictures of the Eucharist with a violent ashy hatred. His fire was put out. She had thrown cold water on it. The whole thing was distasteful to him. His mouth was full of ashes. He went out cold with corpse-like anger, leaving her alone. He hated her. He walked through the white snow under a sky of lead. And she wept again in bitter recurrence of the previous gloom. But her heart was easy, oh, much more easy. She was quite willing to make it up with him when he came home again. He was black and surly, but abated. She had broken a little of something in him. And at length he was glad to forfeit from his soul all his symbols, to have her making love to him. He loved it when she put her head on his knee, and he had not asked her to or wanted her to. He loved her when she put her arms round him and made bold love to him, and he did not make love to her. He felt a strong blood in his limbs again. And she loved the intent, far look of his eyes when they rested on her. Intent, yet far, not near, not with her. And she wanted to bring them near. She wanted his eyes to come to hers, to know her, and they would not. They remained intent and far and proud, like a hawk's, naive and inhuman as a hawk's. So she loved him and caressed him and roused him like a hawk, till he was keen and instant, but without tenderness. He came to her fierce and hard like a hawk, striking and taking her. He was no mystic any more. She was his aim and object, his prey. And she was carried off, and he was satisfied, or satiated, at last. Then immediately she began to retaliate on him. She too was a hawk. If she imitated the pathetic plover running plaintive to him, that was part of the game. When he, satisfied, moved with a proud, insolent slouch of the body and a half-contemptuous drop of the head, unaware of her, ignoring her very existence, after taking his fill of her and getting his satisfaction of her, her soul roused, its pinions became like steel, and she struck at him. When he sat on his perch, glancing sharply round with solitary pride, pride eminent and fierce, she dashed at him and threw him from his station savagely. She goaded him from his keen dignity of a male. She harassed him from his unperturbed pride, till he was mad with rage. His light brown eyes burned with fury. They saw her now like flames of anger. They flared at her and recognized her as the enemy. Very good, she was the enemy, very good. As he prowled round her, she watched him. As he struck at her, she struck back. He was angry because she had carelessly pushed away his tools so that they got rusty. "'Don't leave them littering in my way, then,' she said. "'I shall leave them where I like,' he cried. "'Then I shall throw them where I like.' They glowered at each other, he with rage in his hands, she with her soul fierce with victory. They were very well matched. They would fight it out. She turned to her sewing. Immediately the tea-things were cleared away, she fetched out the stuff, and his soul rose in rage. He hated beyond measure to hear the shriek of calico as she tore the web sharply, as if with pleasure. 
and the run of the sewing-machine gathered a frenzy in him at last. "'Aren't you going to stop that row?' he shouted. "'Can't you do it in the daytime?' She looked up sharply, hostile, from her work. "'No, I can't do it in the daytime. I have other things to do. Besides, I like sewing, and you're not going to stop me doing it.' Whereupon she turned back to her arranging, fixing, stitching. His nerves jumped with anger as the sewing-machine started and stuttered and buzzed. But she was enjoying herself. She was triumphant and happy as the darting needle danced ecstatically down a hem, drawing the stuff along under its vivid stabbing irresistibly. She made the machine hum. She stopped it imperiously. Her fingers were deft and swift and mistress. If he sat behind her, stiff with impotent rage, it only made a trembling vividness come into her energy. On she worked. At last he went to bed in a rage and lay stiff, away from her, and she turned her back on him and in the morning they did not speak, except in mere cold civilities. And when he came home at night, his heart relenting and growing hot for love of her, when he was just ready to feel he had been wrong, and when he was expecting her to feel the same, there she sat at the sewing-machine, the whole house was covered with clipped calico, the kettle was not even on the fire. She started up, affecting concern. "'Is it so late?' she cried. But his face had gone stiff with rage. He walked through to the parlour, then he walked back and out of the house again. Her heart sank. Very swiftly she began to make his tea. He went black-hearted down the road to Ilkston. When he was in this state he never thought. A bolt shot across the doors of his mind and shut him in, a prisoner. He went back to Ilkston and drank a glass of beer. What was he going to do? He did not want to see anybody. He would go to Nottingham, to his own town. He went to the station and took a train. When he got to Nottingham, still he had nowhere to go. However, it was more agreeable to walk familiar streets. He paced them with a mad restlessness, as if he were running amuck. Then he turned to a bookshop and found a book on Bamberg Cathedral. Here was a discovery. Here was something for him. He went into a quiet restaurant to look at his treasure. He lit up with thrills of bliss as he turned from picture to picture. He had found something at last in these carvings. His soul had great satisfaction. Had he not come out to seek, and had he not found? He was in a passion of fulfillment. These were the finest carvings, statues he had ever seen. The book lay in his hands like a doorway. The world around was only an enclosure, a room, but he was going away. He lingered over the lovely statues of women, a marvellous finely wrought universe crystallized out around him as he looked again at the crowns, the twining hair, the woman faces. He liked all the better the unintelligible text of the German. He preferred things he could not understand with the mind. He loved the undiscovered and the undiscoverable. He pored over the pictures intensely, and these were wooden statues. Holes, he believed that, meant wood. Wooden statues so shapen to his soul. He was a million times gladdened. How undiscovered the world was, how it revealed itself to his soul. What a fine, exciting thing his life was at his hand. Did not Bamberg Cathedral make the world his own? He celebrated his triumphant strength and life and verity, and embraced the vast riches he was inheriting. But it was about time to go home. He had better catch a train. All the time there was a steady bruise at the bottom of his soul, but so steady as to be forgettable. He caught a train for Ilkston. 
It was ten o'clock as he was mounting the hill to Cossete, carrying his limp book on Bamberg Cathedral. He had not yet thought of Anna, not definitely. The dark finger pressing a bruise controlled him thoughtlessly. Anna had started guiltily when he left the house. She had hastened preparing the tea, hoping he would come back. She had made some toast and got all ready. Then he didn't come. She cried with vexation and disappointment. Why had he gone? Why couldn't he come back now? Why was it such a battle between them? She loved him. She did love him. Why couldn't he be kinder to her, nicer to her? She waited in distress. Then her mood grew harder. He passed out of her thoughts. She had considered indignantly what right he had to interfere with her sewing. She had indignantly refuted his right to interfere with her at all. She was not to be interfered with. Was she not herself and he the outsider? Yet a quiver of fear went through her. If he should leave her. She sat conjuring fears and sufferings till she wept with very self-pity. She did not know what she would do if he left her, or if he turned against her. The thought of it chilled her, made her desolate and hard, and against him, the stranger, the outsider, the being who wanted to arrogate authority, she remained steadily fortified. Was she not herself? How could one who was not of her own kind presume with authority? She knew she was immutable, unchangeable. She was not afraid for her own being. She was only afraid of all that was not herself. It pressed round her. It came to her and took part in her. In form of her man, this vast, resounding, alien world which was not herself, and he had so many weapons he might strike from so many sides. When he came in at the door, his heart was blazed with pity and tenderness. She looked so lost and forlorn and young. She glanced up, afraid, and she was surprised to see him shining faced, clear and beautiful in his movements as if he were clarified, and a startled pang of fear and shame of herself went through her. They waited for each other to speak. "'Do you want to eat anything?' she said. "'I'll get it myself,' he answered, not wanting her to serve him. But she brought out food, and it pleased him she did it for him. He was again a bright lord. "'I went to Nottingham,' he said mildly. "'To your mother?' she asked in a flash of contempt. "'No, I didn't go home.' "'Who did you go to see?' "'I went to see nobody.' "'Then why did you go to Nottingham?' I went because I wanted to go. He was getting angry that she again rebuffed him when he was so clear and shining. And who did you see? I saw nobody. Nobody? No, who should I see? You saw nobody you knew. No, I didn't, he replied irritably. She believed him, and her mood became cold. I bought a book, he said, handing her the propitiatory volume. She idly looked at the pictures. Beautiful! the pure women with their clear-dropping gowns. Her heart became colder. What did they mean to him? He sat and waited for her. She bent over the book. Aren't they nice? he said. His voice roused and glad. Her blood flushed, but she did not lift her head. Yes, she said, in spite of herself. She was compelled by him. He was strange, attractive, exerting some power over her. He came over to her and touched her delicately. Her heart beat with wild passion, wild raging passion, but she resisted as yet. It was always the unknown, always the unknown, and she clung fiercely to her known self. But the rising flood carried her away. 
They loved each other to transport again, passionately and fully. Isn't it more wonderful than ever, she asked him, radiant like a newly opened flower with tears like dew. He held her closer. He was strange and abstracted. It is always more wonderful, she asseverated, in a glad child's voice, remembering her fear and not quite cleared of it yet. So it went on continually, the recurrence of love and conflict between them. One day it seemed as if everything was shattered, all life spoiled, ruined, desolate and laid waste. The next day it was all marvellous again, just marvellous. One day she thought she would go mad from his very presence. The sound of his drinking was detestable to her. The next day she loved and rejoiced in the way he crossed the floor. He was sun, moon, and stars in one. She fretted, however, at last, over the lack of stability. When the perfect hours came back, her heart did not forget that they would pass away again. She was uneasy. The surety, the surety, the inner surety, the confidence and the abidingness of love, that was what she wanted, and that she did not get. She knew also that he had not got it. Nevertheless, it was a marvelous world. She was, for the most part, lost in the marvelousness of it. Even her great woes were marvelous to her. She could be very happy, and she wanted to be happy. She resented it when he made her unhappy. Then she could kill him, cast him out. Many days she waited for the hour when he would be gone to work. Then the flow of her life, which he seemed to dam up, was let loose, and she was free. She was free. She was full of delight. Everything delighted her. She took up the rug and went to shake it in the garden. Patches of snow were on the fields. The air was light. She heard the ducks shouting on the pond. She saw them charge and sail across the water as if they were setting off on an invasion of the world. She watched the rough horses, one of which was clipped smooth on the belly, so that he wore a jacket and long stockings of brown fur, stand kissing each other in the wintry morning by the churchyard wall. Everything delighted her now he was gone, the insulator, the obstruction removed. The world was all hers in connection with her. She was joyfully active. Nothing pleased her more than to hang out the washing in a high wind that came full butt over the round of the hill, tearing the wet garments out of her hands, making flap, flap, flap of the waving stuff. She laughed and struggled and grew angry, but she loved her solitary days. Then he came home at night, and she knitted her brows because of some endless contest between them. As he stood in the doorway, her heart changed. It steeled itself. The laughter and zest of the day disappeared from her. She was stiffened. They fought an unknown battle, unconsciously. Still, they were in love with each other. The passion was there, but the passion was consumed in a battle, and the deep, fierce, unnamed battle went on. Everything glowed intensely about them. The world had put off its clothes and was awful with new primal nakedness. Sunday came, when the strange spell was cast over her by him. Half she loved it. She was becoming more like him. All the weekdays there was a glint of sky and fields. The little church seemed to babble away to the cottages the morning through. But on Sundays, when he stayed at home, a deeply colored, intense gloom seemed to gather on the face of the earth. The church seemed to fill itself with shadow, to become big, a universe to her. There was a burning of blue and ruby, a sound of worship about her, and when the doors were opened and she came out into the world, it was a world new created. 
she stepped into the resurrection of the world, her heart beating to the memory of the darkness and the passion. If, as very often, they went to the marsh for tea on Sundays, then she regained another, lighter world that had never known the gloom and the stained glass and the ecstasy of chanting. Her husband was obliterated. She was with her father again, who was so fresh and free in all daylight. Her husband, with his intensity and his darkness, was obliterated. She left him. She forgot him. She accepted her father. Yet, as she went home again with the young man, she put her hand on his arm tentatively, a little bit ashamed. Her hand pleaded that he would not hold it against her, her recusancy, but he was obscured. He seemed to become blind, as if he were not there with her. Then she was afraid. She wanted him. When he was oblivious of her, she almost went mad with fear, for she had become so vulnerable, so exposed. She was in touch so intimately. All things about her had become intimate. She had known them near and lovely, like presences hovering upon her. What if they should all go hard and separate again, standing back from her, terrible and distinct, and she, having known them, should be at their mercy? This frightened her. Always her husband was to her the unknown to which she was delivered up. She was a flower that has been tempted forth into blossom, and has no retreat. He had her nakedness in his power, and who was he? What was he? A blind thing, a dark force without knowledge. She wanted to preserve herself. Then she gathered him to herself again, and was satisfied for a moment. But as time went on, she began to realize more and more that he did not alter, that he was something dark, alien to herself. She had thought him just the bright reflex of herself. As the weeks and months went by, she realized that he was a dark opposite to her, that they were opposites, not compliments. He did not alter. He remained separately himself, and he seemed to expect her to be part of himself, the extension of his will. She felt him trying to gain power over her without knowing her. What did he want? Was he going to bully her? What did she want herself? She answered herself that she wanted to be happy, to be natural, like the sunlight in the busy daytime, and at the bottom of her soul she felt he wanted her to be dark, unnatural. Sometimes, when he seemed like the darkness covering and smothering her, she revolted almost in horror and struck at him. She struck at him and made him bleed, and he became wicked. Because she dreaded him and held him in horror, he became wicked. He wanted to destroy, and then the fight between them was cruel. She began to tremble. He wanted to impose himself on her, and he began to shudder. She wanted to desert him, to leave him a prey to the open, with the unclean dogs of the darkness setting on to devour him. He must beat her and make her stay with him, whereas she fought to keep herself free of him. They went their ways now, shadowed and stained with blood, feeling the world far off, unable to give help. Till she began to get tired. After a certain point she became impassive, detached utterly from him. He was always ready to burst out murderously against her. Her soul got up and left him. She went her way. Nevertheless, in her apparent blitheness that made his soul black with opposition, she trembled as if she bled. And ever and again the pure love came in sunbeams between them, when she was like a flower in the sun to him, so beautiful, so shining, so intensely dear that he could scarcely bear it. Then, as if his soul had six wings of bliss, he stood absorbed in praise, 
feeling the radiance from the Almighty beat through him like a pulse, as he stood in the upright flame of praise, transmitting the pulse of creation. And ever and again he appeared to her as the dread flame of power. Sometimes, when he stood in the doorway, his face lit up, he seemed like an annunciation to her. Her heart beat fast, and she watched him, suspended. He had a dark, burning being that she dreaded and resisted. She was subject to him as to the angel of the presence. She waited upon him and heard his will, and she trembled in his service. Then all this passed away. Then he loved her for her childishness and for her strangeness to him, for the wonder of her soul which was different from his soul, and which made him genuine when he would be false. And she loved him for the way he sat loosely in a chair, or for the way he came through a door with his face open and eager. She loved his ringing, eager voice and the touch of the unknown about him, his absolute simplicity. End of chapter 6, part 2